Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Our triggers exist because they're teaching us on what we need to fix within ourselves. They are lessons learned. Welcome or welcome back. This is Crime Over Cocktails and I'm Tiffany, your host. Today I'm here with Megan Connor. She is a mother of six, a sex trafficking survivor, as well as generational abuse trauma breaker of her family. Kudos to you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So where does this journey begin? Oh man, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to even say, you know, where we're going to focus. But I was the victim of sex trafficking as a child, started when I was about 7 years old, and um I was somewhat lucky in the fact that we moved away from there after a few years and so there was no like big confrontation with my trafficker or you know, any, any drama like that, but it also meant that I never really got a chance to confront what happened until I was an adult, you know, much later in my life. So I went through my whole life with that programming of, you know, what my trafficker programmed me to believe about myself, which is that I only had a certain value and that I couldn't talk to anybody about what happened. And, you know, just lots of different things that got sort of embedded into my psyche that I didn't realize were there until I started developing all these unhealthy patterns in my life, you know? And so it took a couple of different wake up calls at a couple of different times for me to finally figure out what was going on and how to get out of it. Who at the age of seven put you into trafficking? It was unfortunately a babysitter that lived about a block away from our house. We went to their house before and after school to catch the bus because my parents worked. And um, and in the summers, they were right across the street from the park. So they had lots of access to lots of kids. Wow. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah, it was scary. And it doesn't fit, you know, the typical model that that most people in America kind of think of is that taken movie, um, Sound of Freedom movie where somebody gets kidnapped and then sold or forced into sex labor of some kind. And the reality is that that's a very small percentage of the trafficking that actually happens. And even nowadays, the majority of trafficking happens when somebody's trafficked by somebody that they know really well in their own home. And that was the case with me. I, I, slept in my bed every night, went to school, I went to church, I played soccer, I had friends, and none of the adults in my life knew what was going on. How old was your babysitter? Um, She was in her 30s, and it was her and her husband. And and I would say mostly it was her husband. Um, She was sort of the facilitator, I guess, of the whole deal. So in a sense, she might have been a victim as well? Yeah, definitely. There, There's a possibility that she was the victim of like a coercive control situation where she didn't really have a lot of choice in the matter. So I, you know, obviously I haven't spoken to her since then and the trafficker has died since then. So I will, I will probably never know exactly how that all happened. I did submit a police report 
really only a couple of years ago. And they did a preliminary investigation, spoke to her. And of course, she denied everything. And, you know, there's with absent them opening the door and seeing photographic equipment and stuff around, there's no way for the police to prove that anything happened. And as far as I know, I'm the only one of the kids that was trafficked that has spoken up about it, or at least that has filed a police report. So it didn't go anywhere as far as prosecution goes. So unfortunate. And you see that so much. People are scared to come forward. And I get why you're re-victimized. You, you know, half the time the perpetrator has more authority than you do. They have more rights. Right. Exactly. And who's going to believe a kid? Statute of limitations in some states is really ridiculously low. And, you know, just as far as not coming forward, like you say, there's a lot at stake. And it is what my therapist described this to me as it being three levels of trauma. The first level is when you actually were victimized. And the second level is when you try to tell somebody and you're not believed. And the third level is when the person that did it to you never comes to justice. So there's a lot of layers there to work through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like Shrek says, you're an onion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Trauma survivors have layers. <laughs> Just like ogres. <laughs> so obviously dealing with this probably put you into a whirlpool of toxic relationships, abusive relationships. Yep, definitely. I think that... My One of my therapists said it very well. They said that we tend to gravita- gravitate towards people who believe the same things about ourselves that we do. And, you know, believing what I did about myself, that programming that got put into me by the trafficker, I constantly was in relationships with people and friendships, too, with people who were emotionally unavailable, who were distant. And I found myself too self-sabotaging relationships. If things, if I got too close to somebody and even there was this, you know, beautiful person who loved me very well when I was in high school and I could not, I was not in a place where I could accept that kind of love. I had no idea what to do with it. So I just kept pushing him away because I was like, I don't, I didn't believe the same things about myself that he did, you know, so that made it really hard. I totally can identify with that when you actually get somebody nice, you're like, I exactly. I don't know what to do with you. It's like, you're telling me that I'm beautiful. It kind of makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't know how to respond to the meaningful connection and the secure attachment of that. Exactly. When were you able to break free out of that devastating circle? Well, there were two things that happened. One was that As a young mom, I was parenting my kids the same way that I was parented. So on top of the trafficking that I experienced, my family circumstances growing up were, it was not an emotionally safe environment. My parents didn't really know how to handle emotions. Their parents were the silent generation, you know, so nobody really talked about anything. And we were, I I, speak for myself as a child, I felt like I wasn't allowed to feel things and to be open about what I felt. I often got shamed for my feelings. And I often got gaslighted where I would say, you know, I'm really upset that my brother hit me and my mom would say, oh, he didn't hit you. He lightly slapped you, you know, that kind of stuff, trying to make you believe a different narrative that's more socially acceptable. 
So I was parenting my kids kind of the same way with that, like controlling, I wanted to be in control of their behavior. I felt them as an extension of myself. You know, I looked at it as if my kids are happy and successful, then I am too. And when my oldest daughter was seven, I just remember it was a really hard time for me as a mom. And I remember just getting super angry with her over something really inconsequential. And I recognized that I was exhibiting the same kind of anger towards her that my parents had exhibited towards me. And I stopped myself and I was like, this is not what I want for my relationship with my children. I wanted to make sure that my kids knew that I loved them and I wanted them to feel like they could be who they were without judgment and shame from me. So I really, at that moment, that was a big turning point for me to start reading and researching and finding out how to do it better, how to do it differently as a mom. So that was one big break, you know, and, and as I started to heal my parenting, my mothering, it sort of translated into other areas of my life too, where I started to think about how I related to other people and was that healthy or not, you know, and how were the other people in this relationship feeling and all of that. So it's sort of just, it was a gradual awakening that sort of happened little by little. And um, the more that I, when I finally did start going to therapy, that was really when everything changed because the more that I learned about healthy relationships, the more I looked at everything in my life and went, oh my gosh, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. (laughs) It was like- Isn't that like a crazy thing when you're like, oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, no way. Oh my gosh. You know, I- I was shocked. And and I don't know if anybody else out there can identify with this when I realized that my marriage was abusive because it was emotional abuse and financial abuse and spiritual abuse and all of these other kinds of abuse that were not physical. And when I came to the realization that that was the case, I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea I was in an abusive relationship. And then the more people in my life that I confided in, they were like, yeah, we know. (laughs) <laughs> it's like every, oh. everybody can see it but me you know well, damn. <laughs> but what do you do you know what do you do when you've got a friend who's in a, a relationship that you think is unhealthy and, and none of my friends knew the details of what was happening behind closed doors but there was a lot of controlling behavior that they did see like I really wasn't allowed to spend a lot of time with my friends I wasn't really allowed to spend a lot of time on the phone talking to them that kind of thing. So they recognize these controlling behaviors. So when I did finally get divorced, like I was, nobody was shocked at all. (laughs) Did they throw you a divorce party? (laughs) (laughs) I've thrown myself many parties since then. I used to, um, I've been divorced five years now, but I used to have a party every year on my anniversary. I called it my anniversary. So that used to be my wedding anniversary and I would take myself out for a beautiful dinner and some cocktails and just enjoy, enjoy myself alone on my anniversary. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I took that day back. (laughs) As you should. Good for you. You know, sometimes we have to realize what we're worth and what we've settled for. Because there's so many times you think that it's normal or this is what I deserve or this is what I owe to myself. But really, that is it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, I did believe, um, you know, when I was first trying to leave my parents' house and and wanting to get married just because I wanted to get out of the house, you know, I really I had this moment and and this is going to totally date me. But there was this song and I think it was Pearl Jam 
called Can't Find a Better Man. I don't know if anybody knows that song. I do. But it goes, (laughs) she lies and says she's in love with him. Can't find a better man. And I, and I was engaged to somebody at the time. And I, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I really don't want to marry this person, but I don't think I deserve anything better than this. And that's where I am. Wow. You are worth more than that. Oh, heck yes. I know that now. (laughs) (laughs) And at tax. What? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So not to go into like that story, but you are the cousin of Lori Vallow Daybell, aka Doomsday Mom. Right. Do you think that had something to do with your family background? So my family background has a lot to do with why Lori ended up the way she did. And um, I've talked extensively about that on, on some other true crime podcasts, but not to delve too deep into it, but just to give sort of a, a perspective is that when you come from a family culture where perfectionism is demanded of you, there's going to be dysfunction. And you couple that with also a church, the church culture, which we were raised in the Mormon church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is also a culture that demands perfection. And I would argue that the reason my family culture was that way is because it's so scary in the church to admit that things are not going well and that there are mistakes and that there are sins and there are problems because there's so much at stake socially. And so I think that my family viewed perfectionism as the ultimate goal because that's what was portrayed in the religion. And it's really dangerous to think that way. You know, if it's not safe to fail, it's not safe to make mistakes, then necessarily people start hiding things. And there's a lot of secrecy and there's a lot of shame. And if you add to that, having a father who doesn't show up for you in the way that fathers should, you've got all these unmet emotional needs and you have a mother who kind of goes along with that treatment without stepping in for you. So she's also not showing up for you. And it just creates this perfect storm of dysfunction where you can't help but come out of that with some kind of personality disorder. You know, and not that I'm diagnosing because I'm not a mental health professional. And, um, you know, admittedly, the last time I spent some significant time with Lori was, um, you know, around the 2000s, 2001, 2002 timeframe. So it's been a long time. And obviously, I think her dysfunction grew. But the whole reason I started talking and speaking out is because everybody in the media all of these people who quote unquote knew Lori, her friends and community members were saying that she was the perfect mom and that she was a doting mother and that she was so wonderful and so kind and so happy all the time. And I was like, that is not the Lori that I knew. I saw her dark side in our teenage years and she and I didn't only, we only really butted heads a couple of times. And so she didn't really show that side to me that often, but I saw a pattern over and over where if you didn't go along with what she wanted you to do or think or say, then she was really vicious and she would just cut you out of her life and make her whole family stop talking to you too. So it was something that I saw early on and people weren't talking about it in the media. And I was like, hang on, you guys have to understand, like, this is, this didn't just snap when she met Chad Daybell. She was like this for a long time. And when she met Chad, he was somebody who made her feel 
obviously like a goddess. And that's exactly what she needed, exactly what she wanted. And so I think she saw his theology as an opportunity to, you know, make herself feel better about who she was. So added fuel to the fire. Exactly. Yeah. I hear so much about all that in the Mormon church. It is crazy how much I hear about the perfectionism and secrets and all the crazy things that goes on. Why do you think nothing has changed? Well, that's a complicated question. But um, (laughs) if you've if you've paid attention to the Jody Hildebrand, Ruby Frankie deal, it's the same deal, you know, a therapist who labeled everybody as an addict because she demanded perfection of her clients. And so in her mind, if you watched pornography one time, you were an addict. If you masturbated one time, you were an addict. And she, that's the way she treated her clients. And it's, it, it goes along with like the shame, the sexual shame that, that is pervasive in the Mormon culture. And the reason why I will say that I think that um, it's, it's, it's a thing that comes out sideways or gets dysfunctional is because according to the church, you have to be perfect in order to get to heaven, right? And it's not that uncommon in Christian religions to hear that. You know, there's a Bible verse that says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. But most Christian religions take that with a grain of salt and say, we know we're never going to be perfect in this life, right? But we're going to try. In the Mormon church, they want you to be literally a card-carrying Mormon. And what I mean by that is, they, the temple recommend that they give you. So there are Mormon churches and then there are Mormon temples. They're two different places. Temples are very holy. They're not used on Sundays. And they're a place that you go for very special ceremonies like weddings and stuff like that. They want you to go to the temple on a you know monthly basis, basically, to you know sort of learn higher things is the way that they label it. In order to get the Mormon card, you have to go through an interview process. You have to go through two interviews. One is with the leader of your congregation and one is with the leader of all the leaders. And they both have to sign that and you have to sign it. And then you present it at the door and they scan your barcode and it comes up to say whether your recommend is valid or not. And those interview questions are intense. They ask you if you're living the laws of the church and the gospel to the letter of the law, basically. And then you have to declare yes, I feel like I'm worthy to go to the temple. So it is a culture and a religion where the pursuit of perfectionism is right in front of your face all the time. That's crazy. To me, it kind of reminds me of Scientology. A little bit. (laughs) Yep. There's some secret ceremonies in there. You have to pay your tithing to be a card catering member. So 10% of your income, if you're not paying a full 10%, you don't get to go into the temple. And in the culture of the church, if you're not a, what they call it, worthy temple recommend holder, then you're considered a second class citizen, period. Even to the point where like when I got divorced and I was trying to decide if I was going to date people who were Mormon or not, because I was kind of already on my way out. I, there are a couple of Mormon dating apps out there. And one of the things that people will put on their profile is that is whether or not they're a temple recommend holder. (laughs) And it's like, you can put it as a setting to say, I don't want to match with anybody who doesn't hold a temple recommend. Oh my God. 
It's like yeah. the little black card. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so if you don't have that card and, and it's also, it's ingrained into us from such a young age when you're like 12, 13, 14 years old, there's like this, you know, pervasive thing over everything that they teach you that the temple is your goal and you're trying to get to the temple. And there's even a little saying that says it's like a picture of the temple. And it says, if this is not your castle, then you're not my prince. Oh, damn. From a young, young age, you know, so it's, it's, it's a problem. It's a big problem. Well, yeah, I've already said Disney has lied to us. There is no castle. There is no damn prince. <laughs> like we've been lied yeah. to. <laughs> Nobody's coming for you. So <laughs> you got to no. save yourself. Exactly. How many different therapies did you try? Lots. Um, I did. I started off with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically talk therapy. It's helping you reframe your thoughts about things, um, you know, looking at situations from a different perspective, trying to eliminate negative self-talk, things like that. Um, And then I got into EMDR therapy to specifically work on trauma. And that was probably the most life-changing thing that I went through. It was the very first thing that I processed was my fear of heights and be just because it wasn't complicated and it wasn't attached to other trauma, you know, and, um, I did my, I did my setup session and then I did my processing session. And then my homework was to go up into a tall building and see if I felt different. And I live in San Antonio. We have the tower of Americas and which is sort of like the space needle in Seattle and, um, the, elevator is a glass elevator. And so I decided I was going to go up there and, you know, see how I felt because the last time I went, I went up, I was on a trip to New York and I went up in one world trade center and I had a panic attack in the elevator and I cried the entire way up and I couldn't get close to the edges, you know, to look out the windows and stuff. I had to stay like six feet back. So after, but after I processed my fear of heights, I got in the elevator in the Tower of Americas and I put my head against the glass and watched the ground disappear underneath me and it had zero traumatic response at all. So it was life-changing. Yeah. That was crazy. If I was going to go and test something I'm scared of, I don't (laughs) think that would be it. (laughs) glass nothing's a secret you can't creep up on it or anything it's just blam (laughs) well at least it wasn't like a fear of snakes or spiders or something where i had to go like hold one or something like that so yes (laughs) yeah i don't (laughs) they're not my favorite um but yeah so so emdr therapy really was a life changer for me and about six months after i started that i enrolled myself in an in uh, sorry an intensive outpatient program And it was nine hours of therapy a week. And I did it during the summer because I was teaching school. So I had the time to do it. And it was two hours of therapy on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, followed by an hour of meditation to like calm us down after all of the stirring up of the emotions and everything. So that was a six week program for so for six weeks, I did nine hours a week of therapy. And that was, it was really intense, but it was wonderful. It was mostly group therapy and it was different therapists for every session. So I got exposed to music therapy and all kinds of different things that I probably never would have done if I hadn't done that program. And it was really helpful because the group aspect of it to, first of all, to hear other people talk about their traumas 
and for me to think, okay, there are other people who are making it through too, or who are at least fighting their way through it. That was really helpful to me because I felt so alone for a long time. Like I'm the only one who's been through this stuff. And the other part of it was being able to say things out loud coming from my childhood where I wasn't really allowed to speak or have a voice. Being able to finally say some things out loud was really important to me. And that and, it, and that remains a really important way for me to process things is to say things out loud. Absolutely. You have to process it. I've been doing a lot of research on all these different therapies and stuff. And they even say, like, if you need to scream on the top of your lungs, do it. Because yep. that energy has to escape somewhere. Because right. it's not stuck in your body. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the other thing that I'm doing right now, actually, is I'm doing a lot of somatic exercises of like releasing the trauma and the tension that's been stored in my body for a long time. And I have to say, like, it's super helpful. I'm definitely farther along than I thought I was. You know, I did a lot of exercise therapy, too. I did CrossFit for a long time. That was really helpful because it does. It releases all those things that have been trapped in your body for a long time. Trauma's got to come out somewhere. Right. Absolutely. I find it so fascinating how the body works and how it stores and how it releases. I was like, holy shit, I didn't know any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read that book, The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel Vanderkoek? I have not read it, but it has been mentioned on my show before. Yeah, that was it's kind of textbooky. So if you're not really a technical reader, it's it's going to be somewhat difficult to get through. It also is can be very triggering because he gives real life examples of patients that he worked with and different modalities that he used to help them work through their trauma. So when I was reading the book, I was in the middle of therapy and I could only take small sections at a time because it brought up a lot of feelings for me, you know, but it was also a really helpful way for me to go to my therapist and say, okay, I was reading this and it brought up these feelings for me. Let's talk about it. You know, why is this happening? <laughs> so if you read it, it might be good to have a therapist on hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good to have a therapist on hand anyway, you know, but I, you know, in, in the book that I wrote about my healing experiences, I, I wrote in there like very specifically, there are no trigger warnings in this book because I believe that our triggers exist to teach us what we need to work on. And Sometimes that's the only way we know something is wrong is if we get triggered. And so what I wrote in the book is, you know, if something in this book triggers you, close it, put it down and go call your therapist. <laughs> Figure out why. <laughs> right. It's for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Could be unconscious, but it is for a reason. Yeah. Your book is called I Walk Through Fire to Get Here. How yeah. did you come up with that? <laughs> Um, you know, fire, I guess, has kind of been a theme for me a little bit. Um, I think about, you know, the, the metaphor of the phoenix rising from the ashes. And I think about the purification that happens when you burn something, you know, gold has to be refined in a fire, those kinds of things. And I think it was, I felt, I felt a lot of burning going on when I was going through some of the most difficult things. And, and one of the most freeing things for me was when I left the church was to burn everything that had to do with the church. And that felt really freeing to me because previously things like my scriptures and pamphlets that the church handed out and pictures and things like that were held as like really sacred. And 
when I found out that the church teachings, the truth claims of the church were just made up, manufactured, I was so angry that I was like, I just want to burn everything. And it was so cathartic for me. I just, I went out in my backyard with my fire pit. My boyfriend was there with a video camera. You know, I explained to him why all of this stuff was so significant. And I put it on the fire and I watched it burn. And it was so cathartic. It wasn't, you know, like a lot, some people are like, ah, book burning is so bad because it's reminiscent of Nazism and all that stuff. And I agree, we should not just be throwing, you know, books on a pile and burning them. But to me, it was a chance for me to let go of something that I had invested a lot of time and energy and resources into. It was a way for me to say, I'm, I'm not going back there and to close the door and move on. It's freeing yourself. Yeah. I burned yeah. some shit and it felt good. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does feel really good. Yeah. Yes. I recommend it. I do <laughs> in, too. In small doses. Right. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want to just light a match and walk away, but you know, right. Take, take small, small opportunities to burn something that is going to make you feel better when you burn it. Absolutely. Cause I'm it a really fan. does. Like, yeah. yes. I'm a big fan of writing, writing down emotional things and burning it um, because then that's something you created and it's something you chose to let go of. So that's, that's very cathartic. I did that for one of the, I think it was like the harvest moon or something. I had wrote down all this stuff and I'm like, burn bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But it didn't, it makes you feel better. Yeah. And then all of those negative feelings just go up in smoke and you watch them drift away and they don't ever have to come back again. Right. It's letting go of what does not serve you anymore. Exactly. Yep. Powerful. Absolutely. So what does your life look like now? <laughs> I am genuinely the happiest I've ever been. I just, there, there's like zero shame in my life whatsoever. I have better relationships with my kids than I ever have. I know myself better than I ever have. I'm, I love spending time alone, just doing things that I enjoy for the sake of enjoyment. I have very systematically removed everything from my life that felt abusive or oppressive. And I chose to keep those things that were enriching to me and where I knew the relationship was enriching to others. And I choose to surround who to surround myself with. You know, I don't, I'm in a place where I don't need anyone or anything because I have everything that I need within myself to heal myself and to give myself everything that I need. And the people that are in my life are there because I choose them to add to my life and me add to theirs. So it's a really beautiful place to be. I love that. And I love that for you. Yeah, that's great. Do you keep in contact with your mom and dad? From time to time, I have very, you know, very firm boundaries about when and where and how often and all that. And I'm very well aware that it's not as often as they would like. But um, I I had a conversation with them um, just a couple weeks ago, actually, about some pretty significant family stuff that came up and caused a bunch of, you know, issues. And um, I just, I just told them, I said, I really need you to just listen to what I have to say without judgment. 
And they actually did that for the first time in probably my whole life. And that was really, really wonderful to have that type of conversation with them. I'm in a place where I realize what I do and don't need from my parents. And so it's it's a lot simpler for me to approach the relationship knowing its limitations, knowing what they can and can't provide, and knowing that blood is only important when your relationships with your blood relatives have been positive. And when they've been harmful, then blood means less and less the more you interact with them. And so I approach it from that standpoint now with the my, my eyes wide open with the realization that there's only so far that they can go until they make the decision to do the hard work of therapy and introspection too. Absolutely. You can't make people see things your way, feel things the way you want them to. They have to want it themselves. They have to be willing to do the work. Right. Do you think they read your book? Well, <laughs> that's kind of what part of, <laughs> oh. what part of the blow up was about. My my sister recommended to my mom that she not read it because it probably is just going to upset her because there are some things in there about her. Although what I told my parents, and this is absolutely the truth, I'm very clear in there that I do not blame my parents for anything at all. I think they did the best they could with what they were given. And now that they know better, they're trying to do better. I really believe that. And, you know, it's my story to tell. And I think when, when you harm somebody, you lose the right to dictate what that person says about you or doesn't say about you. And I think it's really important to, um, to give victims and survivors the opportunity to tell their own stories. I'm very, very adamant about that. So yeah, I, and I fully recognize that there are things in my book that some people are not going to want to read and not going to want to hear, but the people who have nothing to hide will have nothing to say. So, and it's not about the people who it's not going to touch. It's about the people that it is going to touch. Exactly. I didn't write it for them. I didn't write it for my family members. I wrote it for the people out there who are going through similar things and need to know that they're not alone and that it is possible to heal because I really spent a lot of time believing that I was never going to feel better, that I, I felt like I was always going to be stuck in this place where I had trauma and triggers and the world is a very scary place. So I want people to know that it's possible, no matter how many layers you have, it is really possible to get all the way through. Yes, with hard work, dedication, and self-love. Mm, yes, 100%. So your book is found on Amazon and yeah. any other platforms? If yeah, anybody pretty can. much anywhere, anywhere books are sold. Um, the Amazon one, it looks like this. I walked through fire to get here. And then I also have another book called a hundred ways to practice self-care. So they're both available on Amazon. Very nice. I think everybody needs a manual on how to love themselves. <laughs> Yeah. And it's just, it's a beginning. It's a tiny little pamphlet, but it's a beginning. And it's really, I wrote it mainly to, to help spark people's ideas about how to care for themselves, because I really do believe that we know what we need already, but sometimes we dismiss it because of societal expectations or because of whatever other pressures that we're feeling. 
And we sort of think we have to fit our self-care into a certain model. You know, it looks like a bubble bath and a piece of chocolate cake. And that sometimes can be true. But there are so many other ways to do it. And I think people need to be intuitive about that. You know, what most likely what you feel like you need is what you really need. Right. Be open to try new things that you might not have thought of before. Yeah. You never know. Change your life. Yeah, exactly. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Not really. I mean, you know, I, I, I pretty much do these things as an open book. You know, it's like, ask me anything. Cause really I've, I've worked through so many things that like, there's nothing that's off limits, you know? And I think the difficult thing about, you know, being related to Lori and having that be my family story is that I think I'm the only one in the family who's, who's done the work to be able to see the dysfunction sort of from an outsider's perspective almost. And so when I listen to my other family members talk about their experiences, it's really hard to hear that they're still kind of stuck in the same old patterns that they're going to keep repeating. So it's difficult. And I, I just, I hope that what people get out of that whole situation is that it's easy for things to turn toxic and not realize it. And when you don't hold people accountable and you don't confront the difficult situations that are happening, it just really quickly goes into dysfunction. And there were so many turning points in that story where different people had opportunities to speak up and say something and didn't. And there were, there were people who did speak up and say something and they were silenced because of the dynamics surrounding it. You know, I think about Charles and I think about Adam, um, you know, they each had opportunities where they spoke up and they weren't believed or they were silenced. So I think that I hope families learn from that pattern and that unhealthy way of relating that like, yeah, it is really hard to talk about family secrets and it's hurtful. And that maybe is my number one message is that the truth is hurtful to people who haven't done their own work. So yeah, it's going to, therapy's going to suck. It really is. And it's going to be um, a long process sometimes and a lot of confronting painful things, but it is so worth it to live in truth. And it's so worth it to live an authentic life and not be covered by shame and covered by trying to hide parts of yourself that you don't like, you know, life is too short to live that way. Absolutely. Just because someone in your family did something, that doesn't mean that's your legacy. You have your own legacy. Yeah, exactly. We all get to make our own way regardless of where we came from. It's not about where we came from. It's about where we're going. Yes. I love that. Yep. All right. Well, then I guess with that, uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's fun to just, you know, have a casual conversation without like, you know, scripted questions. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I literally, I like to be organic. That's my thing. Like I'll study up a little bit, but I don't want to know the whole story because right. I want genuine reactions. I just like, I like being me. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's your best, your best asset anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stuck with it regardless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Links are in the bottom of the show notes. If you know anybody that could benefit off of this episode, please share it with them. It's so important. If you want to be on the show, go to crimeovercocktails.com, 
you can message me there or you can go to the crimeconnection.org. That is my nonprofit organization dedicated to helping trauma survivors. Make sure to like, follow, subscribe, leave that five-star review. Okay, we'll talk crime another time. Bye.